Well, if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This morning we're in our second uh, sermon. We have a second sermon in a study of, of the letter to first letter to Corinthians by Paul that's going to take us all the way through the Advent season. Uh, it's a beautiful letter in its own way, but a really hard letter. What we talked about last week is that this letter is really useful for us because it's an example of a lot of things not to do. Because it's written to a church that was messed up. I mean, to the core. This church was, was on the verge of falling apart. And today's text gets us to the first and one of the most fundamental issues that this church was struggling with. The issue of division. On the night that Jesus died, one of his main prayers to the Father, on behalf of those that he would leave behind, on behalf of his followers, was that they would be one. Jesus, in John's gospel, leaves us with one of the most incredible, poignant, concise march, set of marching orders for the church, for what it's supposed to be in the world. He said that, that, that I'm giving you a new commandment, that you'll love one another, even as I have loved you, that you will also love one another. And by this, people will know that you are my disciples because you love one another in this radical, unnatural, holy way. This kind of love would produce a community that is bound together community that can't be divided. And it's a community, a form of community, that the church has often fallen far short of. First Corinthians is one example. The history of the church is full of other examples. And I think what we know just anecdotally today is that for many people who struggle with Christianity, one of the things that is hardest for them is the record of Christian communities in splitting from each other, in bad-mouthing each other, in finger-pointing question really is, how can we have a kind of united community, the kind of loving community Jesus said would show the world that we're his disciples when we wrong each other, when we often disagree with each other, when we have different lifestyles from each other, different tastes and preferences, different ambitions that sometimes are conflicting? How is the kind of community Jesus prayed for on the night that he died possible? I think by Paul's words to the Corinthians here, who are falling so far short of Jesus' ideal, we get a, a diagnosis of a common problem in our attempt to be unified in the way Jesus wanted us to be. And then we also get, we get pointed ahead towards what it would take to have the kind of unity that Jesus wants to mark our communities together. So we're going to look at unity and division this morning. The first in, in what will be several sermons on this subject, because really, from this passage in 1 Corinthians 1 through the next basically four chapters... The main driving theme is their lack of unity and Paul's call to them to join together around the gospel of Jesus. So that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to look at the root of division, what the passage points us to as the deeper problem that shows up in our division, the danger of division, what makes it such a, a big issue, and then the key to unity, how we can get past division, how we can prepare, even now as a young congregation, to sort of ward it off at the pass before it becomes a problem for us. That's where we're headed this morning. Now, if you would please stand with me uh, in honor of God's word as I read our passage for this morning. I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. This is the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people 
that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to start with the root of division. I think this is what comes up clearly in the first several verses that I've just read for us. Paul, Paul opens his, his, his address to their problems, his, his response to reports that have filtered back to him about the nature of their life together in Corinth. He opens this, this response with an almost redundant call for unity. Did you notice that? He says it the same way like three times, different ways, same thing like three different times. He, he calls on them to all agree. He calls on them to have no divisions among them. And he calls on them to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. He's getting his point across. He's, he's delivering the jabs that are going to soften them up for what's coming next. Verse 11 states what he's heard. Somebody somehow had come to him from this city and told him what was going on. That they'd been quarreling. That they were sort of at each other's throats rather than united together. And verse 12 gets us to the nature of their quarrel, what it was that was dividing them. And it's tricky to figure out what exactly it is. I, it's, it's tough to say. We pretty much know who these people are, right? They're, set, they're lining up behind different leaders. I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. We kind of know who these guys are. We don't know exactly why people would line up behind them against each other. We know who Paul is, right? The guy who wrote the letter, the guy who founded the church. Cephas is is Peter, almost certainly a reference to the apostle Peter. Apollos was this guy that's mentioned in Acts, who was an early convert, an early preacher or evangelist, um, who traveled widely like Paul did, uh, ministering the gospel. It's a, little tricky, it's a little tricky to figure out what they mean by, I follow Christ. Some say maybe this is Paul's response to them. Paul's saying, you're lining up behind these leaders, but you're supposed to line up behind Jesus. And certainly that is what he's going to say. It might also be that this was one of those, one of those parties that's saying, you know, oh, you guys are all following after your little piddly preachers, we follow Jesus, right? So it's almost like, almost like you hear some people today saying that they, they love Jesus, but they don't like the church. And they're upset about all the denominationalism and the splits that are in America. But what they're actually doing is kind of turning themselves into a denomination of one, right? It's even more division. Maybe, maybe that's what's behind the, the I follow Christ. But the main, line, the, the, the main thing that it, that it doesn't seem to be here is any theological disagreement. Nowhere in this whole letter does Paul try to correct their theology. You know, he, he writes a lot of letters in, in the New Testament that are recorded where one of his churches was, was trifling a little bit with something really dangerous, some beliefs that were really dangerous. First Corinthians didn't have that problem. And from what we know about these men, their theology wasn't any different. Maybe it's that they had a different style of speaking. You know, in Corinth, they really prized rhetoric, uh, they, they, they prize the, uh, the appearance of wisdom through the way that you speak. And it could be that they were, they were aligning behind these guys like you might align behind you know, a politician or a, a, a band that you like on the basis of style or taste. 
I'm not really sure. But pretty much all the commentators that I read this week point to one underlying thing, the thing that matters, the thing Paul's trying to get across here. Comes through in the repetition every time of the letter or word I. The problem is less who these leaders are and what they represent than the fact that the people in Corinth were all about themselves. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. This was a city we mentioned last week where they were consumed with their own status and with climbing up the ladder. They were consumed with how people viewed them, with the reputation, and they especially valued. One of the things they loved most was marks of learning, education, wisdom, good taste, right? And so they were constantly looking to brand themselves by showing their tastes were more refined than someone else's, right? So by saying, you, you, can, you can keep Paul, I've got Apollos. Basically what they're saying is, your tastes are for children, they're immature. Whereas if you had my learning, if you had my refined palate, you'd know you should line up behind Apollos instead. The point is, it's about them. That their community was divided because they, they were looking to promote themselves. Their wisdom, their maturity, their good taste. And they were using these leaders to build that sort of identity. Now, there's a couple ways that we identify ourselves, right? I think we can see them both here. You can identify yourself by identifying with something else, another group, another person. So I can identify myself as an American, right? That has some content to it. I can also say I am a Southerner, right? It has some more content to it. I'm a fan of bluegrass music. These things are they're, they're, they're defined content, and I'm saying I'm with them. These things are true of me. And to some extent, you know, in Corinth, they're doing that. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Paul. Another way we identify ourselves, though, and this is the bigger problem in Corinth, I think, is by identifying against something else, right? It's not just what we're with. I'm not just a Southerner. I am not a Yankee, all right? I do not, or I am not, a person who eats at Taco Bell, all right? It seems like this kind of division is exactly what they were after. They were saying who they were and establishing themselves over against each other by saying what they weren't. I think one of the things that helps me here uh, in, in understanding this passage, one of the things that confirms, I think, that this is what's going on in Corinth is that there's a parallel passage in another one of Paul's letters in Philippians chapter 2 that starts out almost exactly like this passage. Beginning of Philippians 2, he says, I beseech you, brothers, he says, uh, if there is, is any um, unity, any grace, any love, that you be of the same judgment, right? Same words here, that you be of the same mind, same as here. And then what he says in Philippians 2 is that you, not cons- that you consider others as more important than yourself. I think we can almost transfer that one line, put it right here, and it makes sense out of their division. Their division was about considering themselves more important than other people. They were obsessed with self-branding, and they were using the church as a means of asserting their own importance. Now, we've got we to do some work to bring this problem in Corinth into our own day because it would be too easy to pass over this and point the finger at them and not, and not let it sit with us to see how we might be guilty of it, right? I, and I've heard people talk about this text as, um, as a reason to be really upset about denominations in America, for example. You know, uh, 15, 1,600 years ago, it would have been unthinkable 
for one of the early church fathers to get off of Interstate 65 on the Harding Place exit, hang a left on Franklin Pike, and drive down that road beside a Christian church, uh, a Unity church, a Presbyterian church, there's a Lutheran church about a block off of Franklin, there's Judson Baptist Church, there's, I'm forgetting, I used to have all these in my head, there's a, there's a Church of Christ uh, and then there's Coffers Chapel. I don't know which one that, what, what that denomination that is. But you basically got a church. You've got ten or ten, at least ten different kinds of churches on that one stretch of road. And I've heard people point to this passage as, as, an expl- or as, a, as a justification for why that's a really bad thing. And um, I think certainly we wish we were more unified, even, even ecclesiastically, than we are. But I think that that's, a, that's missing the point here. I don't think it's so much about theological differences. Paul never shied away from disagreeing and dividing even over theology. Many of his letters were doing just that. He was was playing hardball theologically in his letters. Sometimes we just, because our minds are limited and they're colored by our own time and place and our experiences, when we come to the Bible, we see things differently from other people. And sometimes we see things differently on areas that are so fundamental to how we practice Christianity that we can't practice Christianity together. And as much as I wish that weren't the case, uh, I don't think that this passage is, is meant to, to, to challenge that reality that we live in. I think it's deeper than that, actually. I think it has a lot more to do with what can happen in an individual local congregation, with how Christians live with and for each other. So I think, for example this passage would, would challenge us if we consider ourselves better than somebody else because of the authors that we read and enjoy, right? If, if we sort of have a pecking order in our mind about what enlightened and, and truly mature Christians read and what they don't, and if hearing what somebody else has on their reading list is all we need to know about them to sort of pass judgment, any superiority in us based on what we read and enjoy is a hostile to the gospel. God protect us in our church from a culture where we seek status by who or how many authors that we read. We read, yes, we read, but we read to stir up in ourselves love for God, and we read to get material that we can use to encourage other people and to help them to see him more clearly and to trust him more fully. We don't read to make ourselves look good. But I think there's even, I think there's even more fundamental application. I think if we, if we stop on the level of, of ideas or lining up behind leaders, like, Corinth, like the specific problem in Corinth was, that we might miss a deeper problem that's in all of us and shows up in a whole host of ways. I think there's a deeper root issue of the division that, that this, this root is in all of us, whether we're readers or lovers of specific leaders or not. And that root is our self-love. It's our fundamental desire to make a mark, to build an image so much of what we do, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we parent our kids, how we pursue our professions, so much of what we do is driven by a desire to build a brand. It's, it, this, this drive affects even little things like how we decorate our desks or how we dress ourselves, what we hang on our walls or put in our houses, what we drive, how we talk. And this is not always a bad thing, right? Creativity, self-expression is a way of honoring and celebrating the, the God who made us and who made us different. 
his creative genius is a wonderful thing, something we want to put on display. So the fact that we like diff- have different tastes in music or art or clothes or whatever else is not always a bad thing, right? It's not like we should be a bunch of identical robots. But let's don't be fooled. Much of our self-branding, from the littlest things to the biggest things, thrives on our comparison to other people, on our drive to identify ourselves against others. Now, in case this is still abstract, let me give you a couple of small examples. You know, it's, it's one thing to wear an outfit that you like, right? You got to wear something. May as well be something that you like, right? No shame there. Nothing wrong with it. But why is it a bad thing when somebody else shows up with the same outfit? Right? Doesn't that show that doesn't the doesn't the, the cringe factor that you might experience then show that at least in part what you wear is about distinguishing yourself from other people? About illustrating you have a taste that maybe is more refined than other people's? What about bands? Why do we, why do we say of a band that we really liked them before they were hot? Right? When a band takes off, why is it a claim to fame to say that you were listening to them when they were on Lightning One Hundred? Or, you know, when you could only get them on noise trade or something like that. Why is it that we think they're sellouts once they're widely popular? Isn't it because we like to identify ourselves in ways that are different from other people, in ways that set us off and, and maybe, even, maybe even show that our tastes are more refined than theirs? The problem here is self-love. It's in all of us. It's I and it's superiority to you. That's the problem in Corinth. And that's the one that Paul hammers with the gospel of Jesus. Because this attitude and the division that this attitude creates is an offense to the message of the cross. That's where Paul takes them in verse 13. It's a simple, it's a simple uh, short, concise, and to the point series of questions. It illustrates the danger of division, our second point for today. And it's that they had built an identity for themselves that had nothing to do with Jesus. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Each one of these questions points to a fundamental thing about identifying with Jesus. Points to the significance of Jesus as the one and only Savior for all of mankind. It points to the significance of his cross as something that is the only possible solution to the problem all of us share. And it points to the significance of baptism as this moment where you identify yourself with Jesus and Jesus alone, whose name you're baptized in matters deeply because baptism is a death to who you were, to all of your self-branding, to your obsession with, with, with separating yourself from other people and a, an exchange or a taking on of a new identity, an identity with Jesus where it's all about him and what we receive from him. Here's Paul's point. It's pretty straightforward. Is Christ divided? No, the obvious answer. He's not divided, but you're divided. So what does that say? It says that Christ isn't the point of your life, is he? That's the point. It's that simple. Was Paul crucified for you or any one of these other guys? Well, no, they weren't crucified for you. And the fact that you're lining up or dividing along these lines shows that Jesus' crucifixion isn't the point of your life. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? No, but you're lining up behind Paul. That means you've taken on a new name, an identity that has nothing to do with Jesus. It means that you're not interested in what's been done for you, but in who you are and what you do on your own. Friends, the point of the Christian gospel is that all of us, every single one of us, shares a fundamental 
human problem that underneath the surface of all the differences in our self-expression is a self-centeredness that has traded in our own autonomy in, in place of, of our submission to God, the one who made us and loves us and offers to pr- pr- protect and provide for us. It is a treason that deserves death. And all of us have the offer of a common solution. One solution that, that equally applies to all who will claim it. And that is the only solution that fully satisfies the problem that we've all got. And that solution is Jesus. A death that he didn't deserve to die. A life that he lived perfectly and offers to us in our place. A new identity traded in, trading in our, our, our shameful identity for his perfect, glistening, holy identity. That's what we do when we claim the cross. That's what we mean when we're baptized with a physical symbol of that identity. And that's why we're baptized in his name. It's all about Jesus. What Paul, what Paul goes on to say, the sort of parenthetical comments about who he baptized and didn't baptize, those are sort of beside the point. It isn't, it isn't that baptism doesn't matter. It's that Paul's job doesn't have to do with baptism. And you can't identify with me or whoever it is that baptized you as if that's, that makes you better than someone else. Because the point of baptism is Jesus. And claiming him. That's why Paul only came to talk about Jesus. I didn't come to get a bunch of followers for myself. I want you to, to, to own the power of the message of the cross. And that's what they'd failed to do. Basically, in their division, because their divisions had nothing to do with Jesus, what they were showing is that, they had, that, that, that Jesus wasn't the point for them. That they were self-identifying with things other than Christ. His death and his kingdom. They were setting up anti-Christian kingdoms in their church now i want to say the same thing in a slightly different way to finish our time together this morning the third point in your outline if you're following in your worship guide is the key to unity jesus cross is the key to unity now this is just sort of flipping the point i've just made paul's point the way he frames it in verse 13 is is a negative one don't divide because in your divisions you're showing you don't attach to christ that his cross isn't important to you I think by flipping that, we see, we see the key to unity. The key to unity is what was missing here. And that is the centrality of Jesus and his cross. So if, if our church is going to hold together as a community that loves each other sacrificially, that forgives each other quickly when we're wrong, a, a church that can survive the divisions that normally separate humans from each other, it's gonna ha- we're going to have to be a community that's centered on and drilled down deep into and in love with the message of Jesus' cross. Here's the point. Paul's, Paul's been showing them to restate what's already been said. That because they're not identifying with Jesus, and, and, and because they're instead identifying with things who have nothing to do with Jesus and what he offers, they're identifying with things that have nothing to do with what they really need. They'd failed to understand how important Jesus' cross was. It's not a way, the cross is not a way for them to appear more wise right? It's not something they add to their portfolio of who they are that makes them better than other people, as if they discovered some hot new band or some poet nobody's ever heard of. That would make the cross, that would make their attachment to the cross more about them than about Jesus, more about them and their wisdom and their their refined tastes, less about Jesus. To put it positively, the key to unity and overcoming division is to recognize and love the cross of Jesus and what it provides. Here, here is how the cross provides unity. Now, I want to put this as simply as I can first, and then I want to give you an analogy that I think helps us taste it a little bit better. Here's how the cross of Jesus provides unity for us as a community. 
And here's why Paul takes them to the cross, to the crucifixion of Jesus, as the only power that can push back against their division. Two things the cross points us to. The cross points us to that shared problem I mentioned before. A problem so great, so fundamental to who we are, that it stands above any differences that might separate us. The cross, as it's used in the New Testament in the best of Christian writing, is a, is a vivid display of how serious the problem of sin is. Because it's a, a problem that could not be solved through any other means than the death of the Son of God. That means that that's what changing your life, means that hunkering down and finding some more discipline, that means that finding some new teacher that, whose teachings you want to follow or some new holy man whose life you want to emulate is not enough. If so, that's what, Je- that's what God would have sent and Jesus would not have had to die. The crucifixion shows there is a fundamental problem all of us share that we can't get out of on our own. And that is more fundamental to us than anything else that might divide us. That's the first thing the cross points to. The other thing it points to is a shared solution. A solution that's offered to all. What we're going to see as we continue to unpack the next chapters to come is how one of the most incredible things about Jesus' death for us is that it isn't something that's reserved for the wise, for those who are, who are smart enough to figure it out and, and therefore claim it. It's something that's offered to anybody who call on Jesus' name. That's it. If you call on him, it's for you. It's for the weak and the foolish as well as the wise and the strong. This solution is a solution that redefines who we are. Attaching ourselves to Jesus unites us in a way that transcends all the other things that separate us from each other. Now, now here's an analogy. Frat boy and a hipster go into a burning building. say the frat boy's got on his khaki shorts, his boat shoes with no socks, his sunglasses on the back of his neck with the cord around them, the Bieber-esque heartless wave, top 40 playlist on his iPod while he browses sports news. I'm sure that doesn't apply to any of you guys. If it does, don't take offense. The hipster with skinny jeans rolled up above the ankle, ironic t-shirt, meticulously disheveled hair, or maybe now, actually I'm noticing the the trend is now towards really, really well-combed hair, like a 1950s style, slick well-combed hair, so either one, either way, it works. 2020 vision, but huge black plastic glasses nonetheless. Listening to music that you've never heard of, sipping fairly purchased locally roasted coffee that's too good for you. Hipster and frat boy trapped in a burning building. Now imagine that they find themselves in the same room, locked behind a door that's too hot to open, even if, they, even if it wasn't locked. Now these two guys are very different from each other, right? They are unlikely to hang out in the best of circumstances. And, you know, maybe they would actually own up to the fact that they would maybe rather die, almost rather die, than have hair that looks like that guy's. (laughs) Almost rather die. The almost is the key. See, now they're alike in something that's far more fundamental to who they are than anything else that separates them. They are going to die unless someone else rescues them. Now, let's say the fire department gets there in time, hacks through the door, carries them in to safety. Now what's more important about them? What is it that's more important about who they are now? The fact that they chose different hairstyles or that they were saved by the same fireman? Imagine how ridiculous it would be. Imagine how ridiculous it would be for the hipster to say, 
it's a good thing I had my jeans rolled up this morning. Or for the frat boy to say, I'm just so glad that I had that cord for my sunglasses. Right? These things have now been replaced by a much more fundamental shared identity with each other. That they were in a fix that neither of them could hack their way out of. And they have been saved by a solution that was beyond either of their own ability or their own strength. They share something far more fundamental than anything that separates them. So, so it is with us. Christians share something far more fundamental than anything that sets us apart. We have a problem at the core of our identity that we can't solve. A solution offered to us that's so great and so free and so utterly dependent on grace that's outside of us that in the end, our identity as Christians is less about us, less about us and our tastes and our performance and our wisdom than it is a gift that's inherited freely alongside anyone and everyone else who will claim it. The question for us, the question that this series is going to help us unpack, especially in the next few chapters, is whether we will live like this is true, whether our community will reflect the reality of what Jesus' cross has accomplished for us. We're going to spend some time applying this to our church and to the choices that we make about how to structure our lives as a community. For example, this fact that we are joined together by something far more fundamental than anything that separates us is one reason that in our small group system, we insist on having groups that are made up of people in different places in life, in different ages. Because whether or not you have kids, or whether you're in school or working professionally, or whether you're single or married, is far less important than the thing that you ultimately share with the other people in your group. And that is a common problem with sin and selfishness and a common solution that promises to change who you are, to make us more alike in Christ than, than we are different. It's one of the reasons that we, that we actually have a pretty minimalist aesthetic. Have you guys noticed that? We got nothing going on up here. And that's partly because we don't have control of this room, and I'm all for like being excellent in the visual image that we give to people. But, but one great thing about having to meet with a bunch of junk stacked in the back is that it points out to anyone who comes that what joins us is not our shared taste for really refined and beautiful visual art. What unites us is less, is less our own insight into what beauty really is and more our own taste for our own having been grabbed by the message of the gospel that binds us together and gives us joy together. We're going to spend time applying this truth to us as individuals. Remember earlier I said I think we identify with things we identify against things. It's natural, it's inevitable, all of us do it, and it's really dangerous. So we're going to spend time trying to get sensitive to how we're doing this and how it might be hurting our fellowship together. So, for example, it could be, we're going to encourage you, I'm going to encourage you this morning, but it'll come up later in future sermons. Think about what you identify with and who, and whether or not it might point to an identity that's too self-centered, that's not focused enough on the beauty of the cross and on the opportunity the cross calls us to invest in each other and encourage each other. For example, sometimes it can be tough to connect in a church if you feel like nobody's like you. When, you de- when you're deciding, for example, who to spend time with, how important is it to you that you have a lot in common? Is that a deal breaker for you when you realize 
that this person doesn't have much in common with you? Could it be, this is an open question for all of us, okay? Could it be that our identity is too self-centered and not enough Christ-centered? Be careful what you identify with and how tightly it controls your choices. Analyze your friend group. Is there any diversity in it? If not, have you really thought about the implications of Jesus' cross for who you hang out with? We've got to be careful what we identify against. Just as careful, if not more so. We've got to learn and pray and ask for counsel towards a greater sensitivity to any sense of superiority over others that might creep into us. We've got to get to where we have a knee-jerk reaction against it. Where when we see it, where we're pricked by it, we push back against it in prayer and in repentance. It's in all of us. It shows up in most of the things that are important to us. If there's an area that's really important to you, something you spend a lot of time and energy on, chances are, in that area, at some point, you felt superior. and Look down on people who don't do this thing, value this thing, participate in this thing in the way that you do. It could be parenting. It could be school choices. It could be your political affiliation. It could be what kind of food you eat. It could be what kind of communication style you appreciate. We can identify with and feel superior because of a nice house that we own. We can feel superior because we choose to live in a not-so-nice house and feel superior to those who have nice houses. It can creep up anywhere is the point because it's in you. It's not out there. And we're going to try to get sensitive together to this. It's not that things like this don't matter. It's not that things like politics or school choices or or, you know, what food you choose to eat. It's not like these things don't matter. It's just that compared to the scale of our problem and compared to the scale of the solution that God's grace has given to us, these things are nothing. They're nothing. And they certainly aren't enough to separate us from each other because the call of the cross is to put on the love of the Lord, to make that our covering and our only righteousness, to put on His love as the defining mark of who we are. And when we do that, it sends us out to love each other in ways that don't make sense to the self-serving, self-obsessed, self-branding people that we were apart from Christ. That's the call for us. God, help us. Father, so much in us drives us to differentiate from each other rather than go to each other. We're so prone to superiority, to judgment, to self-obsession. We're fooling ourselves if we don't admit it. And we don't want that to have any part in how we relate to each other. You have won a bride for yourself by your own blood. Jesus, help us to love like you have loved. Help us to die to ourselves as we were baptized into your name. Help us to own your name as our fundamental identity. Bring us to each other. Draw us together for the glory of your name so that all those who see us will see a love that is not natural, that could not come from us, that testifies to the truth of your promises. We know you can do that, and so we give it to you and ourselves into your hands for your sake. In Jesus' name.